KZSU FM Stanford. Welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law and affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, as well as a visiting research collaborator at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. Today, I'm very excited to have on the Edward M. Kennedy Institute's Lorelai Kelly, um, who is someone that I've come to know over the last several years. And as I just said to Lorelai in our pre-discussion, I'm an attempt to do an introduction here that is not overly fanboyish, even though I am an enormous fan of Lorelai's work. Uh, today, we are going to be discussing uh, both broadly and then more specifically both the antecedents of and the current state of our legislative decision-making process through a construct that Lorelai has been focusing on over the past few years, although I think Lorelai might say that she's been focusing on this uh, for her career, the idea that Lorelai has of resilient governance, which, and I will have Lorelai define it very soon, um, is designing government in a way they can deal with uncertainty, with complex decision-making, and ultimately create policy that reflects not only broad national interests, but also the interest of all stakeholders and those involved. Now, this is a topic that we have discussed on Hearsay Culture at some length, not only with the information policy and information theory folks that we've had on the show, but also more specifically in areas like decision-making in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement and IP policy and the Stop Online Piracy Act and on and on. Lorelai's focus, however, is in an area which, in which, and this is where the fanboy stuff is going to start, where her work, I, in my estimation, is unique. Because Lorelai has spent the last, the last 20 years looking at how expertise exists within legislative bodies, particularly Congress, and the erosion of expertise within those bodies. Uh, Lorelai's experience, which I'm going to run through very quickly in a moment, gives her, and this is again unique, uh, unique insight from both a policy perspective but more broadly from a theoretical perspective. So who is Lorelai Kelly, if you aren't familiar with her already? Um, again, she is now affiliated with the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, and I'll have Lorelai talk about that as well. Um, she was also affiliated with New America's Open Technology Institute, the New America Foundation, um, and she piloted Smart Congress, which uh, she describes as a decentralized system of expert knowledge and civic participation methods methods to modernize Congress. Uh, she is a civil military expert, uh, and she has a lot of experience on the Hill. Uh, she has degrees from Grinnell College and Stanford. Uh, and by the way, I should note that even though Lorelai was at Stanford, I did not know her when I was there as well. Uh, we actually were, in, were uh, introduced by a mutual friend. Um, after living in Berlin while the Cold War ended, she taught at the Center for Conflict and Negotiation at Stanford. Uh, then she set up a house, set up a bipartisan study group on global security. Uh, she has spoken all over the place, uh, which is a very technical term, uh, for she has widely spoken and written. And again, in my estimation, her writing on expertise in Congress is second to none and is a vital national resource. Um, Lorelai is joining us via Skype on February 26th, um, and she is joining us from Washington, D.C. Lorelai, thanks for uh, joining us today on Hearsay Culture and taking the time. Thanks. It's my pleasure. So, Laurel, I, you know, as I mentioned, I'm I'm a big fan. You know that. But let, let me let me do this for those that aren't familiar with your work. Tell us a bit more about your background and how you came to focus on resilient governance before we define it. Sure. Well, I was in the decision analysis realm at Stanford, which is interesting for uh, today's purposes because at that time, framing and information asymmetry and 
uh, all these really interesting academic exercises we were working on, uh, and we worked on decision-making for peace processes, they became very popular in the political behavioral science framework just in the last decade. So I feel lucky that I had that background with some of the original thinkers at Stanford. And a lot of what I learned when I was in graduate school and then taught there, really I applied while I was working in Congress. And I went to work in Congress in a unique way in that my best friend was a member of Congress from Oregon. And she asked me to come out to D.C. in the late 90s to set up some informal convening systems inside Congress on global challenges that were not fitting into the committee system, keeping in mind that the committees were organized in the 1940s, really after the end of World War II. And there was no way for Congress to sort and filter modern challenges like climate, terrorism, peacekeeping, health, all these issues that were really front and center today. The reason she asked me to come out was because after the GOP took over Congress in the mid-90s, they eliminated the shared knowledge system of Congress, really. I like to call it the lobotomy of Congress. 120 science experts, um, almost all of the shared staff in the caucus system, which was an informal knowledge-sharing system across the Hill, even. The specific one she asked me to come out and try to supplement was the Arms Control and Foreign Policy Caucus, which had shared staff. All of that disappeared. The committees themselves, which are the the institutional memory on policy for Congress, are in the committees. Those were consolidated or eliminated to a great degree. And so you had this institution really struggling on deep, complex, system-wide problem-solving. And at the same time, the power of recognition and information dissemination consolidating into the leadership, which means it became highly politicized in the very structure of information sharing in Congress. So that is just a backdrop. That was part of the contract with America for folks who remember that uh, decade. It really damaged the legislative branch badly in terms of its sort of knowledge immune system, you might say, its able ability to go toe-to-toe on issues of national security with the executive branch, uh, issues that require a lot of input and deliberation, issues that require forecasting or predictive modeling. That's what the Office of Technology Assessment used to do for Congress. And keep in mind, these were congressional, you know, congressional organizations, so they were highly trusted in the system, and they also knew how to fit into the agenda and the calendar and, and um, you know, co-locate knowledge where it was meaningful to the members in the committee. And by that, I mean, you know, in states and districts um, that had special expertise. It really did that whole comparative advantage analysis of getting academics and experts and situated knowledge on board in the policy process. Um, so Elizabeth first, my friend who is in Congress from Oregon, she asked me to come out and set up I guess what you could compare it to actually is like a zip car on policy for Congress, which was I used the empty committee rooms and the issues that were being ignored on the oversight plans, mashed them up, and created a whole convening system uh, to supplement the official oversight process. And you you can imagine, like with the number of issues that came up um, after the Cold War ended, 
the you know the interventions, the 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 military's remit expanded considerably. We saw that in not only in sort of hurricane response, but in Afghanistan and Iraq, where they were trying to help set up civilian stability and and uh, governance systems. So we had a real full plate of issues. Uh, we convened with thousands of staff really over the course of 14 years and on you know hundreds of topics. And these were what I like to say either user-friendly academic types, people who didn't have a financial conflict of interest in the issue they were talking about, and um, people from the agencies, people from our own federal agencies who sometimes, in my view, are just the biggest, um, deepest thinkers in the world on some of the policy issues we're facing. But they don't have an easy or fluid or consistent feedback mechanism between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And as we've seen in the last few years, it's become very antagonistic and combative. So there's a lot of what, I guess, in the, in the geeky decision analysis sense, a lot of information asymmetry going on. The Citizens United decision five years ago, which allowed unregulated uh, anonymous money into the system of policy and politics is another distortion. So I've been looking at that, and I, I moved into technology four years ago because it became obvious that given the fact that the reputation of democracy itself is at stake, uh, the best chance for democratic practice to modernize is by leveraging technology in the public interest. And so that's what I've focused on now. That's what I'm doing with this Resilient Democracy program is really looking at this theme of resilience for Congress specifically. So, Lorelai, let's. Um, you you said a ton there, and I want to unpack a little of it. Um, you, you mentioned convening processes, and I want to make sure that listeners that aren't uh, familiar in in even not just specifics, but even generally in the committee system uh, in Congress understand what you mean. And and the way I want to ask this question is, uh, you know, from the, the perspective of let's say a staffer on the Hill, right? A bill is introduced, and I'm not asking the you know eighth grade civics question. And has a bill become law? Although that might be ultimately what I'm getting at. Um, what happens to that legislation from an expertise perspective um, that would allow the formal policymaking process to vet that bill the way we would hope? Well, I'm, a lot of the you know the fundamentals of any piece of legislation that a member introduces, and they introduce thousands of bills every year, and only some of them make it out of committees after they're referred. Um, on the floor or by the parliamentarian is that um, what I've been looking at is not only how to get uh, citizens and, and especially experts who live in districts or states that uh, are connected on subject matter to the committee jurisdictions of members. That could be transportation, it could be uh, foreign policy, it could be armed services. There are, there are what, 23 committees um, on the House side, and I'm not sure, I'm not remembering almost as many on the Senate side. Homeland Security is another one. You know, cybersecurity, which is where sort of all technology has been lumped into this label. And one of the things I've been looking at is, A, how do you broaden the aperture of information that gets in in the first place so that it's a more deliberative process for gathering ideas? 
And the other would be, what can we make more inclusive in the deliberative process itself? Um, the Senate and House are conducting probably only 50% of the hearings that they conducted 10 years ago. This is a tragedy not only for the institution, because as I said, these committee activities and reports are the institutional memory of expertise and issues in Congress. They're a huge public education opportunity that goes missing. Just think about the kinds of, of coverage and interesting depth on conversations about challenges that we could be having with our legislative branch. And, you know, members of Congress are far more connected to the population than the executive branch. Meanwhile, you have a presidential, you know, um, government here where so much more of the power of information and decision making is accumulating in the executive. And the irony of it to me is you have all these members of Congress complaining bitterly about the consolidation of power to the executive, but the truth is uh, Congress did it to itself, and um, it's going to have to rescue itself on that front by updating and modernizing and increasing its capacity to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the executive branch. Right now it just can't. I mean, we saw that with the authorization to use military force, which has come up to be reauthorized. Remember, that was the bill that was passed kind of in a and an overreaction, in my opinion, after 9-11. And it's been the framework and the permission slip for just about every foreign intervention that's happened since. It, it's, um, you know, whether I agreed it or not with it in 2001, it really is inappropriate for the world we're in now. Uh, and for Congress to not uh, pass it or... Um, do something for itself to take some of that power back from the executive branch, I would think would cause a moment of reflection, whereas stop fighting for a minute on politics and partisan grounds and help this institution get back on its feet so it can be really truly three branches of government. We're uh, chatting with Lorelai Kelly of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute on KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Um, Lorelai, of course, in this in the second half of the time, I do want to ask you, <coughs> excuse me, about uh, some of the campaign finance issues you mentioned, as well as, quite frankly, the the, the difficult and you know perhaps sad question of whether um, our current uh, political um, discourse even allows for the kinds of uh, expertise and deliberation that you are uh, seeking to uh, reinstitute and rebuild uh, within Congress. But before we get there, and again, this is, you know, by way of background uh, for listeners, um, tell us a bit about the Edward M. Kennedy Institute uh, specifically, um, and then your definition of resilient governance as it relates to what you just went through. Sure. Uh, the Edward M. Kennedy Institute is like a presidential library, but for Congress, it was pulled together by uh, Senator Teddy Kennedy's family after he died and built a wonderful building next door to the JFK Library up in Boston. It, the feature of it is a replica Senate chamber, which actually has far more technology in it than the real Senate. Huh. And they have convened dozens and dozens of public events on policy issues and bringing in elected leaders from the legislative branch, from Congress and others. Um, but I think the biggest feature is that they bring in school classrooms and they run through 
a Senate deliberation and the decision-making process in this replica chamber. This Resilient Democracy program is one of the first research programs they are undertaking. It's the host uh, of this idea, I guess you could say. And a lot of what we hope to do is field research. So this isn't a D.C.-based project. It's going to be in states and districts where I and, and my research partners will go out and do, I guess, you know, interview assessments in states and districts about, one A, uh, what kind of technology might help you, um, you know, reap the collective wisdom of your own constituents, uh, B, who's doing that already? Are, are you familiar with your hacker labs? Are you familiar with your experts in your land-grant schools? Are they sorted and identified in a way that matches your institutional responsibilities? Um, are they a significant constituency? What would that look like? The other question I'm asking is, how can citizens organize convening mechanisms, meaning gatherings, that actually help you on policy? Most people are familiar with you know, town halls. I, I can tell you, sort of on off-the-record conversations, most members... And keep in mind, you are on the record. Or on the record, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. We, are, we are recording. I, I would be, a journalist would have said, be quiet, but I'm going to say that just so. Sure. Yeah. But they don't like the town hall model. It's just sort of an impoverished way to exchange information. It's an open mic. It's sort of one-way broadcasting from the audience to the member to the member to the audience. It's not a problem-solving discussion. We have such superior ways to convene, you know, and engage. And I, I would challenge anybody out there who's listening to go to your local member of Congress and say, you know, what do you need most help on? Like, this is what I know. This is where what I know fits into your own committee assignments. Um, or sometimes members are passionate about an issue. And that often shows up either in language resolutions that they've introduced and also in um, caucuses that they are, are members of. So there's all kinds of opportunities that exist informally and formally in Congress for uh, citizens to connect on. I, I know when I worked on the Hill, it, it was very hard to get the scientists, for example, in the room in a way that was useful when we needed them. But when you think about disruptive technology, what I think about when I hear the word disruption is it messes with time and space. When you mess with time and space in Congress, it, it's... Uh, it's about calendars, which is an agenda and timing of policy issues, and um, constituents and geolocation of knowledge. So that's how time and space have been interrupted for Congress. And we need to figure out how to build constituencies around that new time and space that's uh, been created, not only because of the technical upgrades in Congress, but um, because of the transparency rules changes that have happened over the last five years. And it's that coincidence that creates a lot of new space in the policymaking process itself. Congress, I think, on the outside, uh, people think of it as, you know, the house of cards. They see this television show. I can guarantee you that Congress is not organized enough to be that awful. <laughs> Congress is far more, I guess... In a benign sense, and I'm a, a lover of the institution, I'll admit that. It's much more like sort of that blinking VCR um, that was at your grandparents' house <laughs> and just blinked for years and years. I mean, it sort of did its function. It wasn't using the latest. 
technology and somebody could make it work. But the thing about Congress now is there's a, a huge uh, in acceleration in the last few years of things like all U.S. code being in XML, so in markup language. Uh, uh, Congress's uh, data just went online fully uh, this last week. What that will do for discoverability, search, um, and the retention of institutional memory is huge depending on what tools we build and who they serve. What bothers me a little bit about some of the tech that's surrounding Congress right now is, for example, Congress will put a bunch of data out there, people will create applications, and then they sell them back to Congress. So you, you're basically creating a, a technical system that reinforces and helps the same people. Sad to say, but some of the best applications that I've seen working with Congress on data analytics the only people who can really afford it, again, is Wall Street and the K Street lobbyists. So we don't have a truly democratic um, sort of set of, of tools yet for small C citizens. That's why I'm working in civic technology. I feel that my knowledge of the system and my intentions are best put in service of public knowledge for public purposes. One of the other questions I'm going to ask in states and districts is to the members' offices, who do you trust to be the open data intermediaries for modern governance? Who should that be? I think the Edward M. Kennedy Institute will try to be one of those open data intermediaries uh, that interpret and um, build the algorithms and help automate knowledge for public purpose. But we're going to need to have some rules of engagement. And Congress, to be honest, uh, it has to stand up for itself and make those rules, and those rules need to serve the public, and they need to connect the legislature back to citizens. And I feel like that's one way we can slice through all this noise and and money that's uh, you know almost created a, a private market for influence at this point, because the deliberative process itself is struggling in today's environment. Um, so it, it's really a classic wicked problem for Silicon Valley types. It's one of the most sort of delicious engineering problems I've ever seen. When I talk about this to my computer science friends, they get very excited about the possibility of helping. What could be more interesting than you know uh, redeeming and building and improving the reputation of democracy? Uh, the United States, better than anybody, knows how to scale inclusive systems. That's what we can do in today's world. And I would argue that this is um, in our own self-interest, but it's also a security issue in today's world. Uh, as we know, we're in a, in a situation of crisis and governance failure, and we need to move forward with some new models. And that is exactly where Lorelai and I'm. I'm uh, everything you're saying. I'm. I'm listeners may hear uh, small sounds. That's me taking notes. By the way, um, I, I will tell you right now that I will be citing you for Congress is not organized enough to be as awful as House of Cards. Um, so that is that that <laughs> quote. And I and 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 I know that you you your ability to uh, explain these these seemingly procedural and and dry topics in ways that people can relate to is is I. I 
would think extraordinary, and, and there's an example of it. You, you just alluded to the question I was going to get to, which is more of your classic radio host question, which is a variation on so what. Um, what you're describing in the abstract sounds like a problem, right? We need experts to help our policymakers, and we've got all of these institutional barriers and lack of technology and, and lack of process now to even allow experts in the room, which which I agree is an enormous problem. Perhaps for listeners that are not sold on this being an issue in light of all the other problems that we have with democracy, you were just alluding to this as a national security issue. And perhaps you could give my listeners an example of where you see this particular failure leading to undesirable results. Well, that's a good question, and, and let's go back to what does resilience mean for governing. I'm doing a set of interviews right now, which goes into staff and members, some former members, asking them, what does resilience mean? And you'd be amazed at the different responses I get. What I'm trying to do right now is figure out how do we define resilience as capacity, not recovery. Most people think of resilience, they think of, you know, Superstorm Sandy and New Jersey bouncing back or... Um, or, you know, something after a, a crisis, uh, coming and getting back on your feet. Well, I'd like to define resilience as, as much more the ability to endure and withstand vol volatile situations um, and make good decisions within the crisis and through the crisis. And another big piece of resilience, in my view, for governing is, is to not overreact, is to figure, you know, figure out how to maintain a well-informed deliberative process despite the 24-second, 140-character um, news cycle that we live in right now. And it, it, I think that, that the you know, dealing with complex issues and creating a decision support system for members, it's going to be very complex because Congress is 535 members, House and Senate, each of which is run like a small business. And there's not going to be a big unifying uh, system that uh, controls everything. The, the new Library of Congress, for example, uh, could become a, a data fusion center or some kind of a systems integrator. There's a new uh, librarian that was nominated just, I think, two days ago. I, I read her bio. She looks great. She looks like she completely understands and is committed to access to knowledge and to modernization and technology, even though she's not a techie herself. If you simply allow these... Uh, technologists in to help, that's a huge boon to Congress. So defining resilience as capacity to govern. Let me give you an example that just happened recently as a thought experiment. Um, I'm sure you remember, what was it, just ended last month or earlier this month, the Malheur uh, Nature Reserve up in Oregon was taken over by armed militants who were angry about land use laws. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Having you know extreme behavior like that happen in this country is unusual. I thought that the community responded magnificently. The sheriff, the attempts at negotiation, the attempts to uh, create bridges, but basically the community, which is a very conservative one. I mean, remember, I I came to D.C. with the Oregon delegation. I've been there mm -hmm. uh, as a mountain biker and a bird watcher. Really, um, was was really fantastic and very moderate and very democratic, small d. But I really feel like one of the ways we need to be able to respond to these kinds of 
of crisis situations or angry citizenry much earlier on is with an inclusive process of redrafting legislation. Let's face it, the land use laws for the West were created in the 1870s to, um, you know, under the Homestead Act to in- encourage westward expansion. The mining rules, the land use rules, they really have been tinkered with, but a lot of these, these laws are, are completely obsolete. Why not put out a, a, a citizen authorization draft on a Wikipedia-like page? There's one that actually exists that we're playing with here called Madison. The French parliament just did this. A couple of other parliaments are doing it. Estonia, Finland, Open Ministry. There's all kinds of ways to create participatory contributions earlier on to gather the ideas of the people who are actually impacted by rules that are obsolete. Now, no, you know, some people are not going to like the outcome of that either. Keep in mind, uh, societies change. Sharing public resources has to happen in a different way, but at least it, they will have an honest discussion about it. You know, I, I am from northern New Mexico where some of this, uh, you know, destruction of Native American lands happened over the last couple of years after the Bundy Ranch fiasco. And um, I, I probably know some of the people who were went to <laughs> high school with some of those folks. But I also know, having grown up in, in a rural, very, very conservative area, that my neighbors would probably come up with some really good ideas of, of how to move forward and share. Um, and we need leaders who can, who can do that. Another great uh, possibility for us right now with analytics and, and modeling is to bring efforts of citizen scientists who are affiliating their research through uh, colleges or universities or, a, uh, I guess, a high-reputation knowledge entity why can't we use that citizen science data in the oversight process of Congress? There's no reason why we can't run those uh, visual visualizations in hearings, on markups, on amendments. I, I would love to see that. I also think that if you can co-locate knowledge in people's states and districts, you're bringing their voters and their constituents into the policy process in a way that is politically salient. The problem I've found with academics is this, I call it the myth of omniscience, whereas because we're really smart, it's obvious, and because our footnotes are so beautiful, they will be translated into legislation. That's never happened in human history. It's not going to happen now. You have to show up. And there's opportunities now to show up in so many different ways, the timing of expertise, the, the, the co-location of knowledge. I'll just close with the one favorite quote I got from a chief of staff, actually, from California, who was actually a friend of mine at Stanford. He's working in Congress. Um, and, and I said, what can we do to give you better information? And he said, stop. Stop sending me clickable links. I need an expert in the room and the political incentive to use facts. 
Well, uh, we're chatting with Lorelai Kelly of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute on KZSU-FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. I'm going to skip the public service announcement because Lorelai is on a schedule, and I want to get as much out of her as we can. Um, Lorelai, let me, let, me, let me ask you to drill down a little bit more on the technological overlay here, and I'll ask you the question this way. Right? You know, we now have 25 years, roughly, of uh, experience with you know, a, a robust Internet. Um, certainly, the initial visionaries of the modern Internet envisioned that people are going to be communicating with each other um, and sharing information, and in that way there'll be greater understanding. We're recording the show on February 26th, 2016, where no matter what your political stripe, uh, clearly, uh, at least at the presidential level, uh, people that don't seem all that interested in having discussion, um, on, particularly on the Republican side, and I, I make no bones about saying that uh, Donald Trump seems to be the antithesis of what the Internet was designed to achieve in terms of information sharing, Right, seems to speak very heavily against against uh, a public interest, perhaps, in having those discussions. What is your take on communicate? and this is a broad question, then we can get more narrow, what's your take on the Internet as a, and, and really on technology as a communication medium to allow for that kind of sharing of expertise, given the evidence that we see today, and again, maybe the timing of this is good or bad, um, that would suggest that the Internet has not created those avenues of aggregation, but rather has created silos? Yeah, I, I, that's a, a, a great question. I, um, you know, there's equivalence of that in the security threats we're facing from violent extremism now, too. And, you know, what Putin has done as a propaganda master online in the, you know, invading uh, Crimea, um, I, I guess it's also probably sober to think that the people who stand to lose the most from sharing and connection are often the people who get to that space first and try to prevent it from happening. Right. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I did a project for the World Bank over the summer where I looked at technology and, and the use of communications tech for, you know, violent extremism like ISIS and Boko Haram. And, and, and I think a helpful way to look at, at these is, is they're like malevolent startups. They're agile um, what they do is they take local grievance and scale it to global ideology. Um, it, it, they require a permissive environment, and usually that's a result of, of real predatory elites or a corrupt system that leaves them excluded and, and or impoverished, although I would argue that the uh, philosophical piece of this, which is they're being left out and not allowed a voice, is probably more significant than poverty. Uh, they require, you know, a push, like an, a precipitating event is the second piece of it. So a permissive environment, a precipitating event, and a push. And the push is the sort of professionalization of recruitment into these really sinister ideologies uh, that are wreaking havoc and, and, and sort of the wanton murder that's happening. I, I think that it's time for a sober reassessment of communications and and the acknowledgement among uh, techs, and, and certainly in Silicon Valley, uh, this sort of utopian tech libertarian vision, it, it's not going to work like that in the end when you come to human beings and their need for rules. Uh, I have seen the attitude of techies change considerably over the last three years, certainly after the Snowden revelations and the over-collection or surveillance, however you want to look at it, problem debacle that we're facing um, that I guess for somebody who worked on on national security in Congress the way I looked at at, at the NSA 
issue was that we have migrated process competence and complex problem-solving capacity into the military's remit for years. They have all the computer scientists, and I'm exaggerating, but they have most of them. They, they have uh, the uh, budgets, the lack of scrutiny to, to experiment. What happens when you give that competence to military entities is that information becomes warfare. That's not surprising, and it's also not... Um, a shock to to me because when I was on the Hill, I could see a lot of complex problem solving migrating into the Armed Services Committee. What should have been shocking to Americans is that the first time we talked about Internet freedom in Congress in a substantive way it happened in the Intelligence Committee. That was not okay. That was not a healthy sign of democracy. The other piece of the Snowden revelation that really bothered me was that he was... Uh, Part of a contractor. He wasn't even a government employee. This is even scarier <laughs> right. when you're working for, was it Booz Allen? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, corporations aren't even, you know, they don't have the double burden of competence and transparency that at least the government has. That should worry people the way that we have outsourced, outsourced a, a really vital, in fact, the most vital public decision-making functions to the private sector. I'm not saying there's not a lot of great people there, but we haven't thought about it very carefully, and, and I don't think there's enough boundaries on it. And in fact, I would like to see that brought back in to the government. So after the uh, the Snowden debacle, I've seen a real shakedown in the people working on tech policy. The people who are still involved have stopped being such sort of um, utopian or antagonistic, anarchistic, and they're much more sort of libertarian, curious, much more interested in problem solving, much more willing to invest in actual policy making capacity, much more willing to have empathy for these old clunky institutions we're dealing with. It's a very positive step forward. The Obama administration has recruited heavily up and down the West Coast. I think Todd Park is at Stanford doing this. Really important. I would love to see a couple hundred technologists come do the same thing for Congress. We did. Uh, I did help set up a tech Congress program. Started this year. Uh, former Waxman Henry Waxman staff went out to California. Travis Moore and uh, he he was uh, did a wonderful job recruiting and, and finding the funding for placing technologists on the Hill. So we've, we're starting to take some baby steps, and um, uh, that's been that's been really encouraging. Uh, the the thing I would point out while I'm talking to a California audience, like I was born in San Jose. I grew up in Northern California. I was aware of um, technology when I was in graduate school in the 90s at Stanford. What I know is that this movement that we're experiencing now, we're sort of experiencing the downside of it, it started out as a really humane, world-loving movement. Uh, the 70s and 80s, you know, the free and open software movement, the ideas behind it, the academics, the engineers, the computer scientists were real dreamers in the best sense. They were so humane and, and full of peaceful intentions. And I feel like if that group of people could get back together and sit down and say, hey, folks, this is what we meant. This is where we'd like to go with this. We need some new rules of engagement. Almost every code of conduct I see in a social media site, like GitHub or what's the other one, Reddit, mm-hmm. has really good, pretty strident 
participation rules. If our civil society in public life had the had the the code of conduct of GitHub, we'd all be better off. Like, what? Where is that constituency for civility? Where are the civic scorecards? We have to build a constituency that marginalizes the ugliness and the name calling and the slander. We have to do that because you know what? No matter who wins next November, we're going to be stuck as a nation with a faction of people who are probably still really angry and who think it's okay to behave this way in public. Lorelai, I know that we're pushing up on time. I will take as much time as you can until you say that you have to go. Is it about six more minutes? Outstanding. I will take six, and I thank you for your flexibility because I know that you, there's other things that you are doing and can be doing. L- let me ask you this, right, And, and as we transition here into six minutes we have left. Um, my response to what you just said is, wasn't that what we called the bridge-building moderate? Um, in other words, if you, you know, again, if we're thinking about expertise inside government and technology, right, can expertise and technology technology replace right the the increasing absence of the bridge builders right I, I, you know for example you know Illinois Senator Mark Kirk right is getting blasted right now uh, by aside from all the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee but others simply for suggesting that the president right could nominate someone to replace the late Justice Scalia. Um, that kind of, you know, that passes for moderation today, it seems. Um, and yet, you know, it's, I guess, again, pushback question, right? Can technology and expertise solve or even begin to address the problem of having that position not only be viewed as sacrosanct or, uh, you know, or not sacrosanct, uh, but also, you know, vituperative? So what, what's your take on that? I actually think that that you you know it, that we need a new new generation of elected leaders to really move through this this real zenith of of, <laughs> of dysfunction and awfulness. Uh, a couple of things I would say is that as voting becomes more accessible with all these technical platforms like TurboVote and other kinds of of much easier, much more accessible. You know, the vote by mail was the first example of this, where you don't have to show up at a certain time and place to cast your ballot and participate. I think that will change uh, representation dramatically yeah, if people get out to vote. Because remember, what under thirty percent or forty percent of people voted in the last election—that's appalling, right there. And that might change the uh, the gerrymandered district problem. Uh, also, you're going to see probably more and more uh, neutral redistricting. That might help in the long run. Uh, what I would say about Mark Kirk, who, yes, is a moderate, is that um, you know the, the way this happened in Congress, certainly in my life, is when you had the consolidation of of power back to the political leadership, the participa- you know participation in Congress itself become, became far less democratic, whether you like the Tea Party or the Freedom Caucus or not. Um, they are, they do have a point about not being allowed to participate. And whether you like Paul Ryan or not, he is trying to devolve power back out to the periphery inside Congress itself. So support him on that as an institutionalist. I think w- with him being beat up so badly for saying we need to just stick to the Constitution, this points out to me a, a huge civic memory hole that we're suffering through as a nation. Um, we need uh, not only the public to understand that, uh, it, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We just need our basic gears to start working again. We have the most complex, successful, durable, participatory system in the world. Congress is the most 
complicated, wonderful democratic system. It is obsolete. It needs to be modernized and updated. But even at that point, it's not going to replace relationships that happen locally. Nothing's going to happen that I talk about is going to happen without a local constituency. So when Mark Kirk gets beat up, we need to have some kind of a rapid response mechanism of, of sort of interested bystanders or participants that are, are, are citizens that are informed but not active in the political process even. You know, take out ads, get on radio shows, and push back uh, for democracy, uh, saying that this kind of, of slanderous marginalization of people trying to play by the rules is a very unhealthy sign um, for all of us, and it leads to bad consequences. And calling them out on it, and I, I understand that this process of marginalization uh, will take a while, but it's going to take different people showing up at the right time. And, and that's what I would say we have. And, and I hope that more Americans are concerned because they're, you know, the reason they are having this success, of, uh, you know, signal in the noise, the Donald Trumps of the world aren't an accident. They're an outcome. And but we have to sit down and look at how this happened over the years of how we've neglected our democratic institutions uh, refused to fund them, allowed not just the Republicans, but at some point the Democrats as well to jump on this anti-government bandwagon. Everybody's an, a libertarian at election time, but then everybody wants Social Security and roads that work and heat that turns on and water that's clean and kids that are educated so they can participate in a global economy. You don't get to have it both ways. You know, I would encourage you, when somebody starts lambasting the government, Ask them very specifically, what are you going to give up? Mm -hmm. And that is where, and I know, Lorelai, we're, we're pretty much out of time, and I certainly uh, agree with you that uh, this is not merely a, a GOP problem. Uh, the party system itself, you might say, is obsolete, too. Let me ask you this 10-second ten question. You alluded to it at the end. For listeners that want to learn more, not only about your work, but to do something about this, where would you point them? I think that one of the most interesting things I've been seeing locally that we're going to figure out how to deploy into decision making is look at the uh, civic journalism that's happening locally. Um, that could be the old newspaper that's getting online. That could be new um, public access, open uh, communities online. I, I, I would you know, make sure to check out whether they are walled gardens on the internet, meaning not accessible or has have unreasonable um, fees to join. I think also being much more careful and aware of how your data is being used in the public space. Go to your local community college, see if there's a citizen science program. Figure out maybe how your special area of expertise fits into uh, a decision-making process. Go simply look at your member of Congress's committee assignments. Go talk to your member of Congress. If you're a technologist, go in and ask them, what, what could I do for you? I'll give you something to do. Go onto your member of Congress's website and check it for dead links. I did that for a few <laughs> members. They were so grateful. And you could start that conversation with the, uh, the IT person in the office and help them they uh, will be very grateful for any kind of, of help and partnership uh, that starts at the local level. 
uh, familiarize them with your hacker lab. Um, ask them if they would like to create a new way to engage with the community that's in a safe space, that's not out in public, that's going to be about questions and answers. Um, that kind of thing is completely available to everyone. I, I tell you, when I worked on the Hill, I hardly ever had to, a meeting with someone who would come in and ask me, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. And the people who did that, I remember them to this day, mm -hmm. and some of them remain my friends. And I must say, my Stanford community have been champions in that way. They, they were one of the best things that ever happened to me, and I'm still in touch with them. Um, so Silicon Valley, California, huge role to play in the next five to ten years. We're going to get to a turning point, and a lot of it is going to be, you know, building a bridge between the revolution and the institution. Lorelai Kelly of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, thank you so much for taking time. I know you have to run to another meeting. I, As you know, I, I personally think that your work and the work you're doing is some of the most important work being done uh, in the country on how to fix our decision-making process. Uh, I invite you back on the show when you have time, but thank you so much today for joining us today on Hearsay Culture. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Blow uh, kisses to the Golden Gate for me. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I and I, you know, I'm going to now parrot as as I as I've done a few times here, uh, Lorelai's uh, comments uh, with regard to Stanford. And this is a good time for me to do it. I have a few extra minutes here um, on hearsay culture because, as I mentioned, Lorelai was kind enough to work uh, work me into her schedule, and 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 we found the time. Uh, but uh, you know, my my uh, continued, and it's a nice segue to what I want to talk about. Uh, my continued work on hearsay culture um, really is in part a way to say thank you to my colleagues at Stanford um, when I was physically there from 2005 to 2007 and continue to be affiliated with CIS uh, for the opportunities that I've had, you know, particularly uh, but not exclusively, uh, Larry Lessig and Jennifer Granick and Lauren Gelman, uh, not to mention people like Mark Lemley um, and others at Stanford Law School, um, which is the nice transition um, to and again, because I have a few minutes here, and this is a good time to do it, um, to point out a remarkable uh, milestone in the history of this show. Um, I launched Hearsay Culture um, in 2006 uh, when I was a resident fellow at CIS uh, because I was looking for ways to get back into radio um, and because, in part, I, I wanted to uh, do a show where I was talking to really smart people, uh, but also, in part, because I wanted to uh, build up my own knowledge base as someone who was coming out of uh, litigation uh, practice in New York uh, and feeling that I had a good general knowledge but not the kind of expertise, speaking of, uh, that I wanted to have as a law professor who would be writing and advocating and teaching and the like. Um, and so, and this is the remarkable thing, at least to me, and uh, perhaps other listeners may or may not have noticed this um, and, and may or may not be shocked by it, uh, but in uh, just a few short months, uh, in May uh, of this year, 2016, uh, Hearsay Culture will be celebrating its 10-year anniversary, uh, which, which just blows my mind. Um, and I am so grateful for the opportunity to have done this show 
uh, for the past 10 years. Uh, and, and you know, that starts right at KZSU uh, with Mark Lawrence, our uh, engineer, uh, who really <laughs> physically built the station, um, and the many uh, program directors um, and station managers and DJs uh, who have put the show on the air for the last 10 years. Um, and I'm excited um, that I'm in the process of finalizing what I think will be a very special um, interview uh, and a, and a pr- potentially different interview format uh, that I've done uh, to celebrate that 10-year anniversary. And I'm going to, as I'm finalizing the plans over the next couple of weeks, and again, I'm recording in February, um, February 26, 2016, I will uh, say more about it and blog more about it when I have more details. But I I do want to note uh, that 10-year anniversary um, in a way that says thank you, not just to folks at Stanford uh, and KZSU, but also uh, to my listeners. Um, So with that, that in mind, and again, because we have a little bit of time, um, I'm also going to just uh, you know quickly um, go through the remaining guests that we have for this quarter. Um, Sam Brylowski uh, will be on uh, next week uh, discussing the Library of Congress's uh, ARSC, excuse me, Association for Recorded Sound Collection Guide to Audio Preservation. Sam is also actually someone that I got to know when I was at Stanford, um, who is one of the nation's experts on digital preservation, which again is another one of these issues where you think really, um, but when, as we will talk to Sam, the amount of our digital sound recorded history that is eroding still, um, and I, by that I mean format degradation, um, is is staggering and, and quite upsetting, and Sam's work through the Library of Congress's National Sound Preservation Board um, has been to preserve that history. Um, ARSC, the Association for Recorded Sound Collection, uh, published a guide uh, last year on audio preservation, which is both written for audio preservationists, but also uh, written more broadly, I think, for policymakers. Um, also, and, and a very unusual guest for Hearsay Culture, um, but I'm going to have on Dave King, the drummer for The Bad Plus. Now, The Bad Plus is a Grammy Award winning <coughs> excuse me, jazz, rock, uh, blues even, a fusion um, group that's had a, a lot of, uh, for particularly for a, a jazz trio, uh, lots of commercial success. Um, I've been a fan of the Bad Plus since, uh, really since before the Bad Plus existed uh, with the uh, their pianist, Ethan Iverson, um, as well as Reed Anderson, their bassist, who I saw play in, in, in a variety of shows in New York City. But uh, the focus is not um, me as a fan of the Bad Plus deciding, oh, wait a minute, and I can use hearsay culture to talk to Dave King, but rather that Dave has launched in the last year or so a uh, vlog, a, a video podcast called Rational Funk, where he posts videos that, that cover the music business and how to get work in the music business, aside from drumming technique. Um, but he does it, I think, in a, in a very unique way where he uses a combination of significant experience and knowledge with, uh, with a, a fair amount of humor, uh, which I enjoy, but we're going to be talking to Dave about the music business and technology and video podcasting and blogging um, and his experience doing that. So I'm very excited to have Dave on. Uh, coming up uh, after this quarter, which ends in mid-March, uh, again, as, as I have done, we're, uh, I'm going to take a break, but then my plan is to relaunch um, the uh, the spring quarter with that 10th anniversary show. And I'm in the process of booking guests uh, for the spring, which is where I will close. Uh, and this is part of the standard way that I've closed the show. Uh, but for anyone that is has suggestions for guests on the show, please do either go to 
to the contact form at hearsayculture.com or email me at david hearsayculture.com. Um, as always, you can listen to the show by going to hearsayculture.com or the iTunes engine uh, in the Apple iTunes uh, podcast store or by going to the Stanford Center for Internet Society webpage at cyberlaw.stanford.edu. Okay, I, I you know I, I, I appreciate the time I had there, the fill, but now I have said what I wanted to say, so I will merely say thank you for listening to Hearsay Culture today. I hope you found our conversation with Lorelai to be uh, invigorating, frankly. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm an enormous fan of her work, and uh, now I feel like I know even more about how to approach these issues. Um, please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming, and have a great day.